Welcome to Call Your Girlfriend, a podcast for long-distance besties everywhere. I'm Amina Tuso. And I'm Ann Friedman. On this week's agenda, a terrible, horrible, no good, very bad tax bill, which contains a hidden anti-choice agenda. Surprise, surprise. The Me Too moment continues, and what happens when men we thought were pretty good end up being pretty bad. Plus, marathon runner Shalene Flanagan takes Shine Theory and runs with it. Oh my god. I am just like experiencing like some of the worst cramping of my life. So you get my very like every time I have to like breathe through it, like you're gonna hear a trepidation in my voice. I had some of the worst cramping of my life last week, and I honestly, you know, am not someone who suffers through that every single I mean, I always have cramps, but like it's never like it's, it's usually not like take me out of the workday bad. And it was like last week. And let me tell you, I'm like, I really was reevaluating all my feelings on menstrual leave. Let me tell you, as somebody who's like woken up in the middle of the night because like my cramps are so bad. And please, like nobody email me about this. I'm in deep talks with my doctor about it. Like cramping is intense. Women really just do play through the pain because, you know, sometimes you forget and then the pain comes back and hits you and you're like, oh, my God, this is serious. I know. I had to do like my, my microwaved stack of beans with my computerist on top of it. Like I had like to amplify the computer. <laughs> the computer, the computer heat though is like it's the only thing that works. It's like a little bit of weed uh, computer computer situation, and then it's fine. You know. But we've had like many horrors in this family because I definitely sent you the picture of my IUD that fell out, and like that's no joke. I feel like you really buried the lead here. Do you want to tell the complete story of what led me led you to text me a photo of your IUD not in your body? I mean, it had been a really gnarly week. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. And uh, I was making a sandwich, as I'm wont to do. <laughs> Definitely was feeling like some cramping, but not like... It was not epic cramping at all. It was like, if I must say, it was actually like very mild. It just like felt a little poke. <laughs> And then next thing I know, feel a plop. And I was like, I wonder what that is. Inspect it. And it is, in fact, a Mirena IUD outside of my body. Okay. Could I, can I back you up for one second? Oh, feel God. it plop. As in, it like fell out onto the floor of your kitchen while you were making a sandwich. <laughs> <laughs> can I just re- recap? I don't want to go me. into the details of why I was maybe walking around my kitchen with no underwear. But... <laughs> This is like, this is where we're at. And I will say this, that when I emailed my doctor to tell her, she like felt terrible because like other X, Y, Z reasons. And that like in turn made me feel bad because I was like, no, I'm not telling you to make you feel bad. I'm telling you because literally every time a doctor talks to you about IUDs, it's always like, you know, nobody tells you that they fall out. And all of the literature says that it's exceedingly rare. Let me tell you, first of all, that's not true. It's like 5% rare. 5% is still a lot of wow. women. 5% it happened is still to a me. lot of yeah, women. Yeah. <laughs> it happened to me. My IUD fell out. Yes. But also, if you go on the internet, it's actually happened to everyone. And so like that made me laugh. 
And so honestly, in like all of my health tribulations that I've been having recently, that's maybe been like, that's maybe been the funniest thing that's happened to me recently. I can't even believe that you let me talk about my normal cramping and computerists while burying the lead that your IUD literally fell out of your body because of intense cramps. Is that like my cramping, my cramp was actually not that bad. The like IUD falling out cramp was not bad at all. And that's not me being like, like brave. It's like, oh, that was like a very mild, that was like a mild cramping episode, but also it was hilarious. And like all things like women's health related, once you go on the internet, the horror is there and it's crazy, but I'm kind of glad that it happened. Like it happened because imagine if I had just like flushed it down and had like never known, I would have just thought I had an IUD in there and it was secure and safe. Also, one of my favorite text exchanges with you after this incident was whether, was you trying to figure out if the IUD that your body rejected is now medical waste or like what you should do with it? Yeah, it's like, how do you dispose of it? I mean, so spoiler, like what did you do with the IUD your body rejected? It is still in a Ziploc bag and it's on my to-do list to look up how to get rid of it because trash day is today. Oh my God. Yeah, you do not want the neighbor's dog like going through your trash and finding an IUD. I know. Like the in, uh, the indignities of being a lady. It's like hilarious. Will they never cease? Um, wow. So does that mean that it's just like IUDs are a no-go zone? Your body is like, we're not having it? Or is it like like TBD? You don't know. This no, is like CSI. It's like, it's like <laughs> TBD. So to be fair, I'm not discouraging anybody from getting an IUD. You should 100% get one. They're like super safe and great and fun. It's just that, like, for me, it did not work out. I think I might, like, try to do round two of this again, but uh, I need to discuss with my doctor first. So, no, I Googled IUD falling out because I wanted to, like, find this, like, statistical, like, info. And I, you know how, like, Google gives you the people also ask questions? (laughs) Like, people also ask, what are the symptoms of the Mirena IUD falling out? What do you mean? What are the symptoms of it falling out? Like the symptom is like it's fallen out. <laughs> you know what I mean? Oh my like, god! I don't you know, know. But this is like everything anyway. that they tell you about being in touch with your body, though, is how you're supposed to like you know you're supposed to like feel the strings out of your IUD and whatever. If I'm perfectly honest, I was not going to be checking for those strings every month. So mm. uh, this worked out like it was supposed to work out. Also, apparently, I spread misinformation. It turns out that the rates of IUD expulsions are 0.05%. Oh, somewhere between 0.05% and 8%. Come on, bedsider.org. I was still right. That is a huge range. So I know. Well, I was telling you that you are the second woman in my life whose body has rejected an IUD and it's like completely come out. So I'm like, I, I don't know what that means in terms of statistical probability, but it seems, yeah. It just means, and that you're, you're friends with women who's like, um, whose uteruses are very strong. You know, I like to think that I am. <laughs> <laughs> women who can handle a, a significant amount of severe pain and also Absolutely. like don't fuck with checking the strings of their IUDs. <laughs> Yeah, or whose bodies are very powerful. I do feel like I have a lot of friends who have like super cycles where like my my body is like, my cycle is such a pushover. Like as soon as I'm with another woman, it's like, okay, I'll try your cycle. Like it's like my body is so quick to sync with anyone else. <laughs> um, I'm not, I'm, I'm like a, I'm a cycle beta, like not a cycle alpha. And I'm friends with a lot of cycle <laughs> alphas, I have to say. <laughs> you know, like when you're cycling all the time, it's not really a problem. 
It's true. Maybe, maybe like I like my body hormonally selected you. It's like, ooh, she's cycling all the time. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, uh, All of this to say, yay, backup birth control methods. Yay. And also let us know what you do about disposal. I'm so curious. (laughs) I know. I'm going to Google it right after we hang up because I can't have this in my house any longer. It's ludicrous. Wow. So there's a tax bill. Is there a tax bill? <laughs> a purported tax bill. There might be there might be a tax bill. Well, the house passed a tax bill, so that happened. Yeah, but um, you know, as we all know, like everybody in the house is a fucking idiot. So like clearly they don't get what they want. Um until the Senate says so. Uh yeah. And so so yeah, so there might be a horrible, terrible, no good, very bad tax bill passed by the Senate. Um I don't know too much to say about that that isn't like the same old uh, same old of like huh like turns out it's being sold as tax cuts for working people when in fact it's tax cuts for people who don't work at all and live off of like the dividends from their investments. Right like some terrible things in the tax bill is that one it's like highly uh, it's like very bad for people who are graduate students Um you know, even though you know my feelings about higher academia. Um, it's true, but also, like, also I want student loans to, like, have a grace period and not, like, I want it to be not cost prohibitive to get, like, to further your education. Like, exactly. I think that if that is a belief you have, this bill is probably not something you should be cool yeah. with. and the bill, like, doesn't do that, you know, but, like, somehow for, like, rich people, it's like they get these, like, private jet deductions and like weird things like shocker they're not for working people the other Mm -hmm. thing that the tax bill does that is like really 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 despicable is that the GOP is essentially wants to use a tax bill to ban abortion that sounds really ludicrous and some like really far-fetched stuff but it's really not they've included personhood language in this bill because what they're basically trying to do is set a precedent to give rights to fetuses I'm not making any of this up this is wild. The worst kind of Easter egg, like, tucked in this bill. Like, the most rotten, the most rotten egg. <laughs> yeah, so our friends at NARAL, actually, have been, like, trying to sound the alarm about this for, for a while because their research team, like, does really important work around this. But so here's the deal with this. The bill essentially allows you to do a 529 college savings plan, which is, like, a plan that you can have for, like, your kids to go to college later, Right. And so they're letting this plan be established for an unborn child, (laughs) which is, it's so nefarious for so many reasons. But like one of them being that like, this is the first time that there's any kind of personhood language in the, in the tax code, which also leaves the door open for future laws, right? And ideologies to say that like, this is an okay thing to do. The other thing about this that's like really annoying is that actually if you are somebody who wants to set up 529 savings plan for your future kids, you can already do that. Just like set it up now. Like I can do that. I don't even have kids. And then you can transfer, like you set it up in your name and then you can transfer it when the baby is born. There's nothing that like disqualifies you from doing it. The reason that they're so adamant about putting the unborn child language in there is because it's a trap. <laughs> <laughs> 
Yeah. And it's also a thing, too, where in order to open one of these 529 accounts on behalf of like a human being, you need to have their social security number. And like, guess what? A fertilized egg doesn't have a social security (laughs) number. And so there's that one line of thinking that like, listen, like this would open the door for other types of legislation that could be used to underscore like a fetal personhood argument if if that is like a thing you believe because you want to stop women from controlling their own bodies cool um it's also like a distraction from the fact that this bill does a lot of things to dismantle access to healthcare like extreme cuts to medicaid and medicare you know other things that would provide for healthier lives for living human beings um that are right. like there's walking still among no funding us. there's still no funding for the children insurance plan Yeah, just so we're all clear on this, they are like, definitely you can save for college for a fertilized egg, but we do not want to provide health insurance for born children. Like, that's essentially what's going on right now. The other thing, too, I think that, like, this kind of story illustrates and why it's so important to, like, for, like, our side never to rest on our laurels is that the people on the other side of this are fucking nefarious and they're playing the longest game ever. Like, if you can't see how the anti-choice movement is basically pushing its agenda in, like, every hidden way possible, this is such a good illustration of that and why it's so important for us to stay constantly vigilant. Yeah, and I just, like, can't get over the fact, too, that it's, like, the, like, rhetorical backflips required to say that we want to allow people to open savings accounts for college for fertilized eggs, but we are also going to extremely penalized people who have student loans like as adults right now. Like the idea that like this is all being done as part of a tax bill, meaning that it's supposedly for economic reasons is just like, I, I like rage headache. Like I can't even, I can't even. <sighs> uh, it drives me up the wall. Like they say, stay woke because this thing is not going anywhere and uh, we'll be keeping an eye on it. Yes. And also, if you are someone who is on, who is using um, like Obamacare insurance, reminder that like we are still in the open enrollment period, which is super important because this administration does not want people signing up for health care. So do it. One way to signal your support for, you know, what little access to health care we have now and like not further rollbacks is by getting yourself covered and telling your friends to get covered and helping each other through that horrible, complicated process. That's right. Open enrollment is until December 15th. And in fact, this is a much higher enrollment rate than we've seen in a long time. So even though the administration is completely cut off, like all of the marketing for it, People are resisting through getting health care. So December 15th, tell all your friends. Yeah. Um, and, you know, that's the other thing. Like this bill um, would potentially remove the individual mandate for health insurance, meaning that people who are healthy and like don't feel like they may immediately need insurance are not required to sign up for it, which means that people who have more health care needs would be forced to bear a greater burden. All of this stuff is connected 
I can't even begin to say, like, I feel like we need a, like a different term for tax bill because it's like brain shut off when you hear shit like tax bill. You don't hear like literally Which the is care exactly and well-being what of everyone. On, right? They're exactly. counting on you being like, uh, taxes, that doesn't affect me. And instead they're like, nope, we're taking away your health care. We're taking away your repro rights. We are going to make fetuses ambassadors next. Like here's We're sending you into now. further student loan debt. Yeah. Yeah. No, thank you. No, thank you. We are like, yeah. I like third eye wide open right now. So yeah, when you see tax bill, just think to yourself, oh, the education, healthcare, and like potential attack on reproductive freedom bill. Like <laughs> that is what it is. You know, like another reason to keep an eye out for like any kind of big bill decision is the fact that it's been what, like almost a year of this administration and they've gotten exactly zero done, like nothing. And Mm -hmm. so whatever chance that they get to, like, ram in everything else they're disappointed about, like, that's what they're going to do. And so taxes is connected to everything else. And they're just going to keep doing this until until we have another election that, like, gets them all out of office. So um, definitely uh, be in touch with your senators about how you feel about the healthcare education and attack on reproductive freedom bill that also deals with taxes. Another thing that we've been talking about a lot is just the oncoming wave of accusations around men who are engaging in like all sorts of sexual misconduct in every industry. And you know what? So many weeks post like Harvey Weinstein, it's still exhausting and it seems like it's not going away. Yeah, we're like essentially two months deep at this point. And I would say it's a little bit more than the tip of the creep iceberg that has been exposed. But Icebergs are like miles and miles wide and deep. So there's like a few more things that have been exposed. There's like a lot of things that haven't been exposed. We both read, and I would recommend to anyone, Rebecca Traster's feature about this moment and the many overlapping things that are feeding it, that are happening as a result. You were quoted in that article, so there's like an additional incentive to read it. But like she really, especially the last third of that, I think like the whole thing is like is really amazing. And I feel so lucky to be living at a time when like I can read 
Rebecca chronicling all of this in a in a really like big picture way. But the end of it where she talks about the question of like, is this a forever turning point? Is this a sea change? Or like what what is this moment where she discusses the probable backlash, the fact that like for those of us who have cared about this issue for a long time, it feels kind of precarious. Like we are one bad Rolling Stone Duke rape case story away from having people discredit all sorts of stories and like brave women who are coming forward, managing the feelings of both kind of like hope, but also the difficulties and like the daily trauma of hearing these stories and also the fear that it like could kind of like backslide so quickly. Like it's a really complicated cocktail of stuff. Yeah, all of it is so exhausting. Everything from like, I did not expect that in my lifetime we would see men really be punished for like bad behavior like this. So anytime somebody loses a book deal or a movie deal or they get suspended from their like fancy New York Times job or whatever, the feeling is like very incredulous. Like, wow, is this really happening? Mm -hmm. But also the fear that, like, and Rebecca definitely talks about this in her piece, that, like, you know, 10, 15 years from now, they'll make a grand comeback. And it, you know, like, it would have been fine. And another thing that's been really exhausting to me is to see the multiple statements that all of these guys put out. And I have yet to see, like, one good statement. So far, they're all like, wow, none of these allegations are true except for the ones where I got caught. (laughs) Or, like, that's essentially how they always go. Like, until somebody has, like, some receipts and they're like, yeah, that one is true. There's a lot of, like, I guess I'm going to rehab now. And they're, you know, like, as if, like, any kind of substance abuse is an excuse for any of this stuff. Then there's also this other thing that's been driving me nuts that is really the entire conversation that is focused on what the punishment should be for these people. And place where we're still not acknowledging like what was that what was done was wrong and the damage that it's had on so many women. One thing that I remember from talking to Gretchen Carlson a couple weeks ago that I've been like seeing so much more of in so many of the more Me Too stories is that there's really not a like good accounting of all of the women who basically got shamed out of their industries. Right. Like how many like amazing women in media will never have and women in film and women in tech and women in everywhere who are just like, oh, I wanted to be X, and but I guess now I'm a Y. And nobody is really reckoning with that. There's also not a huge acknowledgement that like women who don't have the kinds of like economic privilege and um, like basically like storytelling opportunities that we have are also not having their stories told. You know, so it's like I'm thinking about women who work in the service industry and women who work in hotels and all of that. And it's like, who's telling their Me Too stories? Right. And the the idea, too, of women who work in the service sector in particular is that like, oh, yeah, like harassment is just something that you're expected to put up with. Like, I think that's that part of it. I mean, it's definitely comes down to power and which stories that like the media and all of us are interested in hearing, i.e. like more from an a perspective of an actress or an actor who was 
harassed versus someone who was waiting tables who experienced the same thing. But like just pointing out that like, wow, if 80% of people in another field not waiting tables were experiencing harassment at the hands of managers and or customers, we would be like, holy shit. But because we've come to expect that this is like something that goes with the territory. No, actually, this moment should also be about acknowledging that that should not come with the territory no matter what your profession or job. Yeah, you know, we keep referring to Me Too as a movement, but I don't know what that means. Who are the figureheads of it and whatever. All I know is that for a long time, like a Black woman was who was spearheading this. And now it has gotten hijacked and morphed into this like very weird, like white woman confessional kind of industry. And that's also really interesting to watch how... um some of the like more prominent black women who have participated in Me Too have been the ones that have like gotten the most pushback to their stories. Right. And and also it's worth noting that Tarana Burke, who is the one who, you know, start first started saying Me Too like years and years and years ago, conceived of it primarily as a movement for survivors. Like she was like, this is about us together saying that like, we won't be shamed working through like our experience. And like, you know, this to me is exactly related to what you were saying earlier about how the focus right now in many ways, like the news chirons about this and stuff are about like punishment. Will this man lose his show? Like, will this man lose his seat in the Senate? Will this man lose? Will this man lose? And it's like, it's not about how are we acknowledging the experiences of survivors and asking them what they want to happen. Like for them, sure, like yes, but also like to their workplaces and in the world. The woman who founded this, Tarana Burke, like that was her goal. Like what do survivors need and want? Right. And it's like the other thing too that's so like how you can tell that like the conversation around punishment is so disingenuous is that it's so much easier to talk about that than it is to talk about, like, the kinds of culture that makes it okay for, like, a man to have, like, multiple victims in his wake. Or the fact that, like, there are jokes that, like, we're all okay with laughing at. Like, Al Franken, for example, is, like, a very good illustration of this problem. Story comes out with, like, a pretty damning picture with him, like, basically simulating, like, groping a woman. She writes about how upset it makes her Within, like, 15 minutes, there's, like, New York Times op-eds about whether he should resign or not. People on the right obviously are, like, really eager to equate it with what Roy Moore is accused of, which, to be clear, is, like, not the same thing and really, really fucking despicable. And then people on the left are like, well, this is really, like, right-wing rat-fucking and whatever, where the truth is that, like, actually, there is no world in which it should be okay for a man, whether he's a senator or not, an aspiring senator or not, a powerful comedian or not, to put his hands in front of a woman's breast and know that, like, that's going to get laughs. Mm -hmm. And, like, that conversation, like, we're not willing to have. It was not okay in the 90s. It's not okay now. Instead, we turn it into this, like, well, Republicans are worse and Democrats are less worse or whatever. But the thing that I think that, like, Al Franken has really proven is that Democrats are really bad at handling these kinds of calls when the trouble is coming from inside our own house. And it's been like a real disgrace to see like people talk and not acknowledge how like the woman who was victimized in this whole thing feels like, or the fact that like this kind of behavior is not okay and that you don't have to grade it on a scale from like, like groping, like casual groping to Harvey Weinstein. Like all of it is bad. 
Yeah, and like the idea that first we need to put this behavior on a scale and then we need to determine the appropriate punishment as the lens for understanding what's happening right now as we're hearing these stories publicly for the first time is the problem. Not to go back to like continued adoration of Rebecca, but like definitely to go back to continued adoration of Rebecca. Always. She, yeah, always. She's been doing like some other media related to her features. Like she was on on the media with Brooke Gladstone. And then she also was on Bill Maher's show, which like, wow, wow, into the lion's den, Rebecca, saying in like really incredible things about this moment and about like what it means when someone who you think is like a good guy TM turns out to have done things that are not good guy TM things. And like, what do you do with that information? And I think that like, we've gotten to this point where it's not just how do you feel about a bully in an industry that's far from you? Or how do you feel about truly disgusting politician in a state far from you? But like, how do you feel about men you'd consider friends or colleagues? who are accused of this behavior. Like, how do you react then? Like, that is the test of your politics. And that is, like, where rape culture comes home to roost. Yeah, you know, and it's also interesting to me, like, all of the ways that so many women are conditioned to just be, like, problem solvers. Like, at some point in their life, a man in your life, like, very close to you, will actually be accused of something like this because that's just how the world works. And... There is no reason for, like, women to put themselves on the front lines of, like, defending anybody. There is a world in which you can say, like, hey, actually, this person has been really good to me. I've never seen this kind of behavior, but that's really awful that somebody feels victimized by them. Because what I'm seeing so much of this, like, women not realizing that because one man is good to them, like, doesn't mean that they're good to everybody all the time. It's like, first of all, that's not how rapists work. They're not like monsters and strangers. They're literally people that we know in our lives. And also like people are complicated, weird, fucked up people. And I like rarely see this when like, like a public figure who's a woman is accused of doing something like, I don't know, especially when it has to do with like personal behavior. I never see like a hundred men come out to rush to defend her. And then when the opposite is true, it's just like, it's so baffling to me. That's literally how harassment and like all of these dynamics work is that like some of you have to be patsies for like the rest of the system to be upheld. Like this is how it works. You know, like not to say that there is some sort of like sisterhood where you have to like put every woman's need in ahead of yours or whatever or ahead of your own relationships. But I think that it's really important to just remember that we're all complicit in rape culture and we're all complicit in a system that oppresses women, whether we are women or men. Giving those other women the benefit of the doubt, but really giving enough room for their stories to be heard and told probably is our like number one responsibility. Yes. If I weren't holding a microphone with one hand, I would be applauding loudly right now. <laughs> to that point, like just specifically, I'm thinking about the letter that a bunch of women who yeah. worked with Al Franken wrote attesting to his character and his public service and how he cares about his constituents. It's like, yeah, like that's not, the, the, no one charged Al Franken with not caring about his constituents. Like that wasn't the charge. And also like, why do you think that it makes a bigger difference if like, the female staff says something than, like, the entire staff says something. I was like, that's, like, part of the problem. And, like, thank you. It's like, thank you for making, like, the point of everybody who says that this kind of shit is fucked up. Right. Or also, I mean, and also, like, Lena Dunham rushing to make a statement right away that's like, I stand with this person who, I, this man I've worked with for a long time, and the this person who is accusing him is, like, 
one of the three percent of women, which I mean, bullshit statistic on bullshit statistic, like who have invented like the stories of accusation. I mean, like, why would you even feel compelled to say something like that publicly? And it's like that statement, honestly, from yeah, that statement was like very despicable, I thought, because there are so many ways to show your tacit approval to your friends and to your colleagues, like one of them just being complete silence. Another one being like reaching out to them in private and watching it all play out. But when you are a public figure to take like a public stance on something is really like, one, it's like you like knowing and believing that you can sway public opinion. But also it's such a despicable thing to do to somebody else because the the woman in that case, uh, Aurora Perino, as far as the reporting goes, She's not seeking out any publicity. She, like, went to the Mm -hmm. police and the Hollywood Reporter found out about it, right? And so there's something about, like, this whole thing that just, like, has put her story at at the forefront of everything when she's not really asking to go on TV or she's not asking to be recognized in this, like, super public way that is really fucked up. The other thing that's, like, not lost on everybody is that she's, like, a biracial black woman. And it's, like, surprise. Mm -hmm. Like, how come this person gets to be the liar? But everybody else (laughs) gets to be believed. That really, really grates at me on so many levels. And, again, you know, it's just, like, why do, like, your female coworkers have to defend you? Right. Why can't it just be, like, hey, actually, like, our community is hurt and grieving right now. Let's see how this all shakes out. Yeah, I mean, and then also just the fact that, like, to underscore everything that we were talking about, like, you know, their statement said, like, like much like the Al Franken letter, like, we've worked closely with this person for a long time. And it's like, yeah, obviously, like, you can know someone in one context and, like, this person has, like, never, like, done anything untoward toward you. But, like, the idea that, like, you can be 100% certain that you know about the behavior of everyone when you aren't around... It's just foolish and it's painful to acknowledge that. Like, I think that this is one thing that Rebecca's reporting has been really eloquent on and that, like, I've been thinking about a lot is, like, the ways in which this moment is revealing, I think, to a lot of men who have been willfully ignorant of this issue, who don't see themselves um, or who have maybe not actively tried to be coercive or abusive or harassing, re-examining the power that they have, but also their relationships with other people. Like it's, it's, it's this moment of how well do you know the people that you think you know well? How well do you know the character of the people who you think are like good people? And how do you, how do you sort people like that? I mean, we can say, we've been saying for like decades that rapists are not like strangers in ski masks in dark alleys, you know. Yeah, like, no, they're like they literally are. our boyfriends and our brothers and our dads right. and our like co-workers. They're people that we know. Like rapists don't rape all of the time. They have like lives. They yeah, they're not. They do. <laughs> they're not like going out there just like, like it's just, right. but the thing about it that like makes me so angry is that like at the end of the day, I know that people know this stuff. They know it. They, it's just like a complete refusal to acknowledge it. And, and just, I don't know. Yeah. I don't know if I agree with that. I think that like I think people know it on like an intellectual level, but I think that like when it comes to living that and kind of like knowing it deep down in a way that like affects how you're actively living your day-to-day life, I'm not sure everyone does know it. Like we know that like in a statistical way like in our heads, like we know this, but like like I'm sure that a lot of people who have been surprised to learn things about their colleagues who they previously trusted 
would say like definitely most assault and abuse that happens is not at the hands of a stranger. Like they would know that statistic and still be surprised. I think it's because there's a cognitive dissonance that we experience of like, oh, I put you in a good category and it turns out you're not good. I mean, I have to say that like, I think that if I am hopeful about things happening as a result of this moment, like maybe there is like some consciousness level change among both men and women and everyone about how do we like think about whose behavior is worth defending? How do we think about who's good and who's bad and who's capable of something like this and what that means? Like, you know, I don't think that we're looking at like the dismantling of rape culture, but I'm like, maybe for a subset of people who already think about these issues, like it is a consciousness shift. I like, I hope that you're right, but I don't see any evidence of that yet. It's so telling that we... It's like with every one of these episodes that comes out, we have the same, it's like the same pattern emerges over and over and over and over again. And I think that if if anything, like the thing that has been true is that whether it's true of like people in Alabama who are like willing to elect basically like a child predator and people in Hollywood who like want to defend their friends is that the thing that's like the highest on like all of our lists is self-preservation and not really having empathy for other people until I see one of these stories come out and the people who are the survivors like not be doubted and have to like retell their stories in this like very voyeuristic kind of way and just be dragged through the whole process over and over again. Like I will believe that something is changing. But for now, all I see is a lot of people like afraid of like losing money. And that's what is, like, driving the cultural change as opposed to, like, actual, genuine, like, the culture that we lived in is fucked up and we need to change it. Yeah, I mean, I I think that, like, I think that's true, like, about it coming down to money in terms of, like, people who are in positions of power in, like, in, like, a literal sense of, like, I have the power to fund this man or fire him or, like, things like that. Maybe I should have been clearer about my... (laughs) My, like, my optimism is, like, way, way, way smaller than just, like like this is going to be different going forward for everyone. I think it's more just like maybe what this is is like a tiny tick toward more understanding of like what gendered power dynamics really are in the world for people who had been maybe intellectually woke to this issue but like not really living it. I agree with everything you're saying of like a follow the money and I can't wait to decry the Louis C.K. comeback special with you in like probably five years or less. Oh yeah. Can't 100%. wait to hate on that with you. Yeah. It's going to like direct another movie called I Love You Daddy Part 2 that's like all about like all of the personal growth he's made. Daddy's Home 2, that movie? Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's just yeah. I, I just like this stuff is this stuff is really 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 it's really 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 exhausting. And like for those of us who are survivors, just like the amount of just like bullshit that you have to deal with every day. And then to add on top of this, like this cultural refusal to just like change and do something right is, I don't know another word than exhausting. It's really exhausting and it's bullshit. Yeah. You feel tired for a reason. And just the imperative on those of us who are not survivors to just like, check in with love on our friends who are survivors too. And to like really, for those of us who are like seeing this moment for what it is and what it is not, keeping in mind that, I don't know, the short term, it's like, I don't want to be like, oh, it's on us to take care of each other because the system isn't doing it. But I'm sort of like, 
I see that as more of an imperative to like express support in the ways that I can to the people I know who need it right now. Yeah. I, yeah. It's like on one hand, like I don't want these floodgates to ever close. Like I want to see more and more and more, but really what I want to see more of is like women telling their own stories on their own accord and being believed for what it is that they're sharing and disclosing. But also like, my God, what a like fucked up world we live in. Yeah, it's like, you know, that floodgates metaphor. It, I think about that. I'm like, I'm like, yeah, the floodgates are open, but like, who's drowning? And the answer is it's not powerful men. <laughs> like, it's like, yeah, it feels right. it's like, like we're it, all getting yeah. swept away. Like we are all yeah. getting swept away except for the people who should. Yeah. Um, shout out to women who are continuing to tell their stories, though, because I, I do think that the fact that um, we are continuing to see survivors take it upon themselves to like bring bring their experiences to light is something where I'm like wow like even even though the flood is trying to sweep you away you're still talking about this and I am like you are you are heroes yeah you know also I know that I sound like super negative all the time but the one thing a small bomb to my soul is how much of this stuff is coming out of like really good like women reporting out stories yes totally and how some of the strongest stories that we've seen are really when it's not like a one-off account of something that's happened, but really a deeply reported accounting of multiple, of like a pattern, essentially. The conventional wisdom that we always, that we always say is to, to tell women that like, you don't have to share your story and you don't have to talk about it or whatever. And it's true. It's like, it's on your own terms. You can do what you want. But I think that if this season has proven anything is that there's power in talking to people and in mm-hmm. telling them when something really awful was done to you because these are all the tools that the reporters are going to use later to vindicate you. And so mm-hmm. there's been something like really powerful about that for me. Yeah. Shout out to friend of the podcast, Laura McGann, who's one of one of those women who's doing that reporting, who wrote about New York Times White House correspondent Glenn Thrush's behavior just this week and shout out to Jody Cantor and Megan Tui at the New York Times. And like, yeah, and I do think that like, you're right, looking at like who is doing this work and seems to be actually focused on the original aims of the Me Too movement rather than just like, oh, let's 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 do kind of a salacious takedown and like look at like what punishment should be. Like people who are doing reporting that is centered on the stories of survivors, like shout out to those reporters. Yeah. Let's end on a posy note. Yes, please. Can we end on a posy note? Yes. So a couple weeks ago was the New York City Marathon, which um, CYG did not run. Um, Wow, people (laughs) who run for fun. Like, what? (laughs) Listen, friend of the podcast, Claire Mazur, ran the marathon, and she's like a superwoman to me. So, you know, I follow running news. But anyway, this year, a woman won the marathon. Which is Wait, like, what? I'm just listen, kidding. <laughs> she's the first American woman to win the marathon in 40 years, and she did it in two hours and 26 minutes. 
That's bananas. Wow. Shalane Flanagan? You can tell the people about Shalane Flanagan. Oh, man. So many people sent us uh, a link to this New York Times article about Shalane Flanagan, who, in addition to being a lightning-fast runner, has taken this approach to her running career and running in general, where she is very interested in cultivating other women, not just in the sense of like, let's help you do whatever you need to do to get your running game better. I, clearly, I don't know anything about running, but, but also really bolstering them emotionally. There are some stories from her teammates leading up to national championships, world championships, the Olympics, like where she is like taking them out for a glass of wine and amping them up. Like she's basically saying like, you can do this. And basically like it's a perfect shine theory tale because it says she gave this quote to the times where she's like, it's not like this is selfless. I mean, I do like you know, she, she obviously cares about these women, but she says, I thoroughly enjoyed working with other women. I think it makes me a better athlete and person. It allows me to have more passion toward my training and racing. When we achieve great things on our own, it doesn't feel nearly as special. Oh, Shalane, that's my lady. I know. And I just like, especially for things like, you know, running is one of those sports where it's like often billed as like you're working, you're racing against yourself or like you're beating your own time or like not a team sport is like the vibe of running. And I love that like, it's perfect. She's like, I want everyone to succeed. Um, and like, it is just a perfect, wonderful, uplifting story where I'm like, thank you, sports ladies, for modeling Shine Theory once again. I know. It's so perfect. So this article in the Times is great. We'll link to it in the show notes. This is a good note to like go on uh, into Thanksgiving mode into for me, at least. Well, I guess we're, by the time everybody listens to it, it'll be uh, Black Friday. Oh my God, yeah. So instead of shopping on Black Friday, shout out to the women in your network. <laughs> Maybe that's the deal. I don't know. That um, is the deal. I will not be shopping on Black Friday this year. Not that I usually do. I'm a Cyber Monday kind of girl, but I'm also skipping Cyber Monday because, you know, consumerism is so evil. Yeah, I mean, it's a hard, it's hard to like really defend it any at any point, but um, I'm going to spend, I'm going to spend... Black Friday slash today, getting my like end of year giving in order, like researching the places I want to give, like doing a little bit of a strategy in terms of like national versus international breakdown, like versus local. I'm, I'm going to like think about that instead. I like that very much. Once you I'm sure you already out. have your end of year giving strategy done. You're I that mean, kind of woman. I mean, always, <laughs> always. <laughs> <laughs> always you know it's like end of year giving for me is where I reward like every cause where I'm like way to just be awesome and not like some like white feminism bullshit so I feel that like every year it's when I feel the most powerful it's like yes my money is going towards good things it's true very thankful for you boo-boo oh so grateful for you so grateful for everyone out here doing good work <laughs> I'm just not going to mention people I'm not grateful for. <laughs> um, one of my favorite like people on social media every morning does a uh, good morning to to everybody except for like whoever they're mad at that day, and it makes me really happy. <laughs> like the the petty morning greeting. Oh, always. <laughs> it's like good morning, um, good morning to everyone except to the 53 percent of white women who voted for Trump. Good morning to everyone <laughs> <laughs> except for those of you who didn't vote for Beyonce like Grammy like it always you know and sometimes it's like personal people like that they know and it makes me so happy every day oh uh, yes 
All right. So, well, good, you know, like happy Thanksgiving to everyone except to you terrible people. Shout out to my Thanksgiving warriors. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, um, this Thanksgiving warrior is going to have the chillest Thanksgiving this year. So I'm excited about it. No travel Thanksgiving is like my my favorite operating mode. Oh, my God. OK, well. All right. You can find us many places on the internet on our website, callyourgirlfriend.com. Download it anywhere you listen to your faves or an Apple podcast where we would love it if you left us a review. You can email us, callyrgf at gmail.com. We're on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at callyrgf. You can even leave us a short and sweet voicemail at 714-681-2943. That's 714-681-CYGF. Our theme song is by Robin. All original music is composed by Carolyn Pennypacker-Riggs. Our logos are by Kanisha Sneed. This podcast is brought to you by the wonderful Gina Gina D. All right, all right, all right. I'll talk to you soon. See you on the internet. See you on the internet. <laughs>